fellowship is sweet in the house of the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Seriously, thank you guys for coming out here. What a wonderful, what a wonderful place to be. We're going to have some fun. We're going to get in the Word of God and we're going to study some stuff. And uh, I hope I hope you guys are ready. We're we're going to have a little break from Nehemiah and we're going to take a little three week mini series. And we're going to study some things about the end times. We're going to talk about prophecy. And uh, we got a little three-week... Oh, yeah, I forgot about these things. Sorry about that. Um, these, are, these are casualties of being somebody, I guess. I don't know. So there you guys go. Have them again. Get somebody else. They got me twice, at least. Uh, yeah, Okay. We're going to have a little three-week mini-series, and we're calling it How Close Are We? Uh, it's amazing to me. We're going we're gonna to have some fun, I hope, these three weeks. We're going to look at some interesting things. We have studied this subject in the past. We've looked at some things that you probably are familiar with in the past. We're going to try and look at some things that maybe you haven't looked at. Um, three weeks isn't enough. It's just something. It's just some fun. We'll, we'll have a break, and, and we'll look at some ideas um, that maybe you hadn't thought of before. And so considering these things, let me, let me get our kind of focus together. Uh, everybody knows that, especially in the last couple of years, right, since 2020, crazy things have been going on in our world. I mean, especially things that, you know, if you're, and the people in this room I would consider normal thinking adult people. Um, apparently the world is missing some of those. And uh, maybe they should go to church more and find some. I don't know. But, but things have been happening in this world at a rate in these last couple of years that is baffling to me and baffling to anybody who's kind of just a normal thinking mind. I mean, who would have thought, right, some of the things? So I, I, made, a, I made a short list to remind us. We, we, we've been through a global pandemic that, in the kindest possible terminology, resulted from questionable origin. Um, we've learned that COVID only matters if you're entering America anywhere except the southern border. We've seen open rioting in American cities and calling for the end of law enforcement. Who would have ever thought? Your money isn't really money. It's just digital, whatever that is. Uh, even worse, your gender isn't even really your gender unless you say that it is. Who would have thought we'd be at such a place. Um, I can't even believe that there actually people are saying this next one with any level of seriousness, but some people, some kids, apparently now identify as cats. So that schools install litter boxes in the bathrooms in some locations. Um, this is life. The lives of infants in the womb, they don't matter anymore. We're on the brink of World War III. Our government seems to think that if they just keep telling the same lies over and over again, that people are going to be dumb enough to believe them. What's even weirder is that a lot of people are. And maybe the strangest thing of all is that Bill Maher is now defending conservatives. Like, seriously, the above... These things would be enough to make you wonder if the Lord isn't coming back soon, right? 
And we know, actually, if you've, if you've been into this subject at all for any length of time, I mean, you know that for centuries, people have been guessing about when the Lord might return. This is nothing new, right? So just for example, and literally there's hundreds, if you just even just research it a little bit. Um, some of you might remember something called Halley's Comet that was going to orbit and come close to the earth. And that happened back in 1910. It happened again in 1986. And every time the comet comes close, then they think, oh, this could be the end. Uh, multiple wrong guesses from the Jehovah's Witnesses on the coming of the kingdom, 1914, 1925, 1975. They just keep re-upping and trying a new version of some kind of a crazy guess. There was that dumb little book that was published by a guy named Edgar Wisenant in 1988 that was 88 reasons why the rapture is going to be in 1988. And when the rapture wasn't in 1988, he wrote another book, a follow-up, 89 reasons why the rapture is going to be in 1989. <laughs> True story. Y2K, everything was going to collapse. 2012, the Mayan apocalypse. If anybody ever got it right, it's those guys. John Hagee and the blood moons was going to bring it all to an end in September of 2015, etc., 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 right? People love guessing. Uh, we have this insatiable desire to know the future, don't we? So what I'd like for you to keep track of, and this is actually the first little statement I put in your notes, is that anyone who makes hasty predictions about prophecy is wrong. Anybody who makes hasty predictions about prophecy is just wrong. They forget the fact that God actually has very stern warnings in his word against false prophets. The Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 20, But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? Well, here's the answer. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that's the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. Because obviously the things the Lord says are going to come to pass, right? But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. So it's a serious thing to stand and to declare what God says will happen. And most certainly, as they say, time will tell. Give it time. If they're wrong, well, there's a high price to be paid before the Lord. And as a result, because of these terrible guesses that have gone forward, well, there's always going to be skeptics. And the skeptics are always going to pop up and say, well, why should we think that you got it right this time? And you can almost understand why people would have that kind of a natural reaction. In fact, God predicted that there would be people that would make that kind of a reaction. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 3, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come, most specifically in the last days, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So it's natural that people might think, eh, people have been saying that for ages, it hasn't happened yet, why should we believe you now? God said, yeah, there's going to be people like that. 
But the Bible then goes on in the very next verse and says that those very scoffers are willingly ignorant. Uh, Willingly ignorant means dumb on purpose. They're willingly ignorant of things that they can know. There's things that you can know. And if you went on to study 2 Peter chapter 3, for example, you would find that it would go on and describe three versions of the heavens and the earth. The past, the present, and the future. The ones that were of old, the ones that are now, and the ones that are yet to come. Right? And it says that the present version of the heavens and the earth, which is certainly of most interest to us, right? Something that we are not to be ignorant of associates in verse number eight of that chapter one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and one thousand years is as a day with the Lord so while anyone who makes hasty predictions about prophecy is most certainly out of place they're most certainly wrong it's also true that anyone who dismisses prophecy as unknowable is just as wrong How crazy it is for somebody to be so arrogant as to think that just because a bunch of fools were foolish, that that means what God has to say can't possibly be known when he says that it can. You see, what you need to understand that such a person that would do such a thing is dismiss prophecy as unknowable. He's clearly self-serving. And what you'll typically find out is that with that individual, the problem is actually not an intellectual one at all. It's a moral one. It's a moral one. He doesn't want to face the reality of a literal judgment. Certainly not soon. Typically, you'll find that he's a hypocrite. And he's living in sin. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, walking after their own lusts, the people who are scoffers. He'd rather live like the ostrich with his head in the sand, hoping the subject will just go away. But I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that God expects us to know about prophecy. He expects that you will actually know about prophecy. Notice what Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse number 1. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting Uh, And tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the sign of the times? So Jesus says to these religious elites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, You understand about the signs of the weather. How is it possible then that you don't understand, you especially, the signs of the times? And he calls them hypocrites. They should be able to know some things. And so we need to be able to know how to approach this subject and where to look for the right answers. So in this little three-week mini-series that I'm going to do for you, uh, each week that's what I'm going to talk about, where you should be looking. Because what happens is people end up looking in all the wrong places. Right? If you want to find some solid answers, you need to know where to look. So this week, I'm starting off with the obvious, most significant, most important place to look, and that is to look unto the Lord. That's our title today. Look to the Lord. No surprise. Where'd you expect, right? 
Look to the Lord. Well, there's two other places we're going to look, and we'll see those in the two following weeks. Hopefully you'll come back. But clearly, of all the places that you can look for answers, the best place to look is to the Lord. And it makes you wonder, knowing that is an obvious truth, why then do so many Christian people spend so much time and effort looking to other sources of information except the Lord, when the Lord is the safest and surest place to find actual answers for some of these things? In other words, if he has something to say about prophecy, and of course he has something to say about it, well then certainly we need to hear it. And what we're going to see today is that the subject of prophecy is actually closely tied to who he is. And so we're going to start at the end. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, our text verse for the day is Revelation 19, 10. And in this chapter, by the time we get to verse 11 and downward to the end of that chapter, we have the account of the literal bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is actually the theme of the entire revelation of all Scripture, the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. I have verse 10, and I think that's probably all that's on the screen. Actually, let me jump in at verse 9 and read a couple of verses, maybe three verses for you. It says in verse 9, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And it goes on and describes the details of Jesus splitting the sky and coming back at that day of Armageddon. If you will, let's just take a second and ask the Lord to teach us as we walk through some steps studying what does it really mean when the Bible says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word today, I do pray that you'd open it up and help us to see and to understand what you'd have for us, Lord. This is a time for us to be able to compare what you have, so make it clear. Let your spirit do what only your spirit can do. Be our teacher today, and I pray that you'd be honored and glorified. Give us some real practical steps and things that we can apply as a result of this Bible study. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to look at, point number one, a biblical testimony. We need to understand a little bit more about what that's all about. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a testimony? Do you have a testimony? Have you ever shared your testimony with others? That's an important thing to be able to do, right? In other words, what does that exactly mean? So the first thing we're going to do is gain an understanding. The word testimony, if you were just to look it up in the dictionary, and depending on which dictionary you look up, you're going to get some version that sounds something like this. Testimony is defined as a solemn attestation as to the truth of a matter. Somebody is attesting to the truth. They're giving a word of testimony. They're giving a word of witness, right? It's usually used in the context of the law, a legal deposition or a witness to an event being tried in a court. They're giving their legal testimony or their legal witness to something that they participated in or viewed. And from that word testimony is where we get the word testament, right? And so like last will and testament, a legal declaration, a legal testimony of the will, the desire of the individual concerning typically his estate. 
right? Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16 says, Where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. We know that from our legal understanding, right? My, ca my kids can't cash in on all my wealth. Wow. <laughs> Until both Erla and I are dead and gone. That's my legally stated will and testament. Well, likewise, the New Testament in your Bible is the New Testament of whom? Of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Which means that the actual New Testament in your Bible doesn't take effect until after the death of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 27. But we don't exclusively use the word testimony that way, not just in a legal context. In fact, there's many other ways that we find the usage of the word testimony, and it's only fair that we get that understanding before we get in too far. So the next point in your study is the usage. We saw the understanding. Let's look at the various usages. As Bible believers, most certainly, we don't get all our definitions from the dictionary. I certainly hope not, or certainly not from culture. They're going crazy. We need to get them from the Bible. And so if we study the word testimony, and that's all the harder it is, just take your Bible and get a computer and search it out, and where does it appear, and what are the contexts, and how does, it, how does it define itself? We find various ways that it's used in Scripture, and I have those listed for you. We'll go through them quickly. Number one, as a personal witness. This is how it's used primarily throughout all the Gospels. Many, 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 many occurrences of the word testimony throughout the Gospels. I gave you one good example, Luke chapter 9. And verse number five, and whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony, for a testimony against them. So this is somebody giving witness, and this witness that they're giving, by the way, it's an action. They're literally shaking the dust off their feet because that city has rejected the message of God's word. So God sends his people out. They're preaching God's word when people reject it at this point in time, at least in history. This is what they were supposed to do. If they don't receive God's word, well, then you're going to give a testimony about that. It's your personal witness. You witness the fact that they rejected God's word. Well, the next one is a spoken word. Often we find that you give a verbal witness to something, obviously, like in a court of law. We've seen that before. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 45, we read this. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which Moses didn't write, spake unto the children of Israel after they came forth out of Egypt. And so Moses was found to give verbal testimony. That's another way it makes sense. It, it jives with what we understand. Number three, there are promises made. It has to do with promises. That's an important application. So in the book of Ruth, chapter number 4, verse number 7, Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Now to fully understand this story, you'd have to understand the story of Ruth, but the idea is it's the act that would take place, it was considered a legal act, when a man was going to redeem or determined that he was going to care for the wife of a near kinsman. And so if it's a brother or whatever and the brother passed away and the wife is alone and then he's going to care for the wife and then all of the properties and the goods to care for her 
and those lands. And in order to do that, he had to do it in some official capacity. And he makes a promise that he's going to do it. In this case, signified by taking off your shoe. I guess that was a big deal. I don't know. And number four, authority is given through this idea of a testimony. Back in the book of the Kings, 2 Kings chapter 11. This is actually the installment of King Joash, a good king in Judah after a bunch of evil kings. And 2 Kings 11:12, 12, and he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. So there's, a, there's an association with authority. There's an association with anointing. And this idea of a testimony is a powerful, powerful thing. So what does that mean to you? Well, we start putting some of these pieces together. Your testimony then becomes your life story. It's the compilation of all of these things, everything that you say and everything that you do. The question comes down to, do you keep your word? Do you keep the promises that you make? You make verbal declarations. You make witness of certain things. Do you follow through on those things? If you do, you have a good testimony. If you don't, well, then you don't. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's even used this way about Enoch. In Hebrews 11, in verse number 5, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, before he was raptured out of this world, he had this testimony that he pleased God. What a great testimony. Who doesn't want that testimony? Before you are translated out of this world into the kingdom of his dear son, you want to have that testimony known of your life that you please God. And if you don't, well, you've blown your testimony. And people blow their testimony from time to time over and over again. But a godly testimony, a godly testimony gives you some authority. It gives you some power. It gives you the ability to share God's word with people which is actually really important because that's the last usage that I want us to look at, and that's number five. That's the written word. And specifically used frequently describing the scriptures, the written word of God. Exodus chapter 32, verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony, notice, were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other, were they written? These are the tablets. These are the Ten Commandments that Moses received up in Sinai. And so the testimony, as it's called, the two tables of the testimony, the testimony then was placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 16. Thou shalt put into the Ark the testimony, which I shall give thee. Therefore, going forward, the Ark is referred to with the title the Ark of the Testimony. Exodus 26, 33, And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tashes, and thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the Ark of the Testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. The word testimony is used synonymously with other terms to represent the Word of God in multiple places. So, for example, in Psalm chapter 19, and starting in verse number 7, notice, 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And so just in these verses alone, you have the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, the fear, and the judgments. You have six different terms that are used synonymously for the Word of God. You could go into Psalm 119, that great chapter on man's love for the Word of God, and you'll find two more. There's actually eight. Eight is a big number in Psalm 119. And so there's eight different terms. One of them is testimony over and over and over again. So it's a, it's a reference to God's very words that are recorded for you in writing. So as a result, it should be no surprise whatsoever that Psalm 93 verse 5 starts out saying, Thy testimonies are very sure. Because God's word is very sure. That's what the word of God is. There's to be no doubting of it. Because when God says that he's going to do it, he's absolutely going to do it. Now, we're laying a foundation, and you should be able to put some of these things together. But before we move on, I want you to understand something. Because this principle is so strong that this term, the testimony of Jesus itself, the very term, becomes synonymous with the Word of God. That's what we see in the book of Revelation chapter 1 and in verse number 2. The very introduction to that book says, "...who bear record of the Word of God..." and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. It repeats the same idea down in verse number 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. They're so closely related that what we're going to find is a very unusual or maybe not so unusual unity between those two very things so that's our next point the unity now until now I've given you a lot of references on testimony I gave you a quick run through on a word study on that word throughout the Bible but one thing I haven't done until now is mention the very first time God ever uses the word testimony because the Bible students here know that the law of first mention is critical in understanding how God wants to use the word Testimony. So God's first mention of the word testimony is a reference not to any kind of a declaration. It's actually a reference to God himself. That's Exodus 16, verses 33 and 34. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein. I want you to notice what it says. And lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. So that's, his, that's what he tells Aaron to do. So, verse 34, as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. He laid up the pot of manna. So this is the great chapter that talks about God raining down manna in the wilderness, right? And he says, hey, take some of that, put it in a pot, and lay it up before the Lord. And Aaron says, yes, sir, I'll go do it. And as God's Holy Spirit reveals to us that he did it, he then replaces the word the Lord with... The word testimony, oh yeah, notice capital T. 
So the very first usage of the word testimony, it's a direct reference to the Lord himself. And by the way, this was before he made it to Mount Sinai. He had not yet arrived at Sinai to get the, ta the tablets of stone, which are also referred to as the testimony. This is actually very important because I don't want you to miss the comparison. Now we need to be able to do what the next statement in your notes, comparing the word and the word. Now you've got to pay attention to the capital and not capital W's because that's where we're going. Comparing the small w word of God and the capital W word of God. So a lot of you are already aware of the fact that clearly Jesus Christ himself is referred to as the capital W Word of God, right? John chapter 1 and verse number 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you read a little further down to verse number 14, a great way to defend the deity of Jesus Christ, where it says, and the Word, capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. Okay, so this idea is very clear. Jesus Christ is clearly referred to his very name, his very title from eternity past. In the very beginning is the Word of God, the capital W. Before he ever came to earth as a man called Jesus, he's called the Word of God. Now that's interesting because of all the names and of all the things that he could be called from eternity past, God said, no, he, this is the eternal Word of God. And the fact of the matter is, is that the small case, the lowercase w word of God, which is a reference to the written scriptures, and the capital W, the uppercase word of God, is a reference to Jesus Christ. Those two are so closely related to one another that you couldn't possibly discern between them if you were just looking at a chart of characteristics about them. Now I've included that chart in your notes and Listen, I hadn't preached here in a while. I, I could sit here for the next hour and a half and we could go through all these and it'd be a lot of fun, but we're not doing that. You're welcome. But I included it for you because if you're interested, you can take it home and you can look at it. But just notice for your reference, all the various characteristics and attributes of God himself, and you have the references, go home and check them out that are also the same written about the Word of God, the Scriptures also. God is perfect. The Word of God is perfect. We read Psalm 19.7 already. God is spirit, right? If we worship Him in spirit and in truth. His Word is spirit, and His Word is life, which we'll see later because Jesus says He's the way, the truth, and the life. And Well, the Word of God is the way and the truth and the life and those references, and it's eternal and it's light and it's immutable and it produces new birth and it can be received and it can be rejected. And I mean, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know which one he's talking about. Now, thank the Lord in your King James Bible, they actually make a differentiation when it's supposed to be capital and when it's not. You could go on and on with this list because both God and the Word of God have two natures, human and divine. Both God and the Word of God are loved and hated and oftentimes loved and hated at different various times by the same groups of people, interestingly. But I want you to notice something else. Have you ever noticed how the Apostle Paul 
uses the word scripture. The apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle that wrote the letters to the churches that we should be most concerned with. You ever notice how Paul uses the word scripture in the scripture? Well, notice Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 8. He says this. Don't read over this too fast. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, And these shall all nations be blessed. Now, now don't go past that too quick, because not only does the scripture have some seemingly unusual characteristics of the ability to foresee things, but it says the scriptures preached unto Abraham, in these shall all nations be blessed. Well, you can go back to Genesis 22 where that appears, and God said that to Abraham. Okay, how about another one? Romans chapter 9, verse number 17. Notice this. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose I have raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and my name might be declared throughout all the earth. You can go back to Exodus chapter 9, when God said that to Pharaoh, yes, he said it through Moses. But these are the words of God directly spoken, right? And God spoke them to these different individuals at these times in history, and Yet the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, led him to let us know, oh, that's the Scripture. Why is that? That seems like a contradiction. A skeptic would say your Bible's wrong. That's a contradiction. Well, the skeptic's wrong. He's willingly ignorant of some things that he ought to know. He's probably walking in his own lusts. And he's got another reason why he doesn't want to believe the fact that the capital W Word of God, God Himself, and the small w Word of God, the Scriptures are so closely related that you'd have such a hard time differentiating between them. And there's a reason for that, and that's this. There's a critically important link between the entity and its expression. There's a critically important link between who you are and how you express yourself, right? Whatever God says is an extension of who he is. And that's the way it is with you too, y'all. Look, you don't have to wonder sometimes about what's in a man. Just spend some time listening to what they talk about. You learn quick enough. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So the testimony of Jesus deals with what he says. And it reflects on who he is. And that's important when we come to our second point of study, and it's the only other point we have, our major point, it's the biblical timeline. So we looked at a biblical testimony, and we took some time defining what the word is, and we looked some time, took some time to understand how God used it, and, and what the associations are, and what that can mean. Well, now we've got to look at some timelines. Now we're going to actually talk a little bit about prophecy. So it's the testimony of Jesus. We've learned a little bit about that. Is the Spirit of prophecy. It's the spirit of prophecy. And prophecy is the ability to foretell the future. That's what it is. So the testimony of Jesus means that Jesus has the ability, he's able, right, to foretell 
future events. And of course, since Jesus is the Word of God, without question, the Scriptures are going to be our most authoritative source for determining how close are we? How close are we to the end? I mean, the answer is always going to be found based on the proper understanding of what the Bible has to say. Now, I want you to notice something else before we get into some of the details, and, and that's this. In John chapter 5, verses 31 to 39, I want you to notice what Jesus says himself about various witnesses, various testimonies about who he really is. This is actually very telling. John chapter 5, verse 31, he says this. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There's another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He, John, was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him, ye believe not. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Now, if you were paying attention in that little discourse and you go back and you check the very words through there, what you have is Jesus Christ giving five levels of credibility, five levels of reliability to any witness or to any testimony, right? And the first most basic level is I myself giving testimony of myself. And even Jesus Christ, who's perfect, concedes the fact that if somebody speaks about themselves alone, well, that's not reliable at all. Anybody can say anything about themselves, and they always do. And if that individual is speaking of himself, and you're skeptical already, and he's the only guy saying it, you're already thinking, yeah, but you could be lying. So there's a better level, and that could be another person, and he's referring to John the Baptist in this case. So if you have another person testifying for you, well, and again, in a court of law, we would say that this is more reliable. You have another now, an independent witness. Okay, that's more reliable, and that's good as well, but there's yet another level even higher than that, and it's not just another human that's testifying for you, but it's the actual works, it's the actual actions that bear out what you're saying is actually true. That's better yet. We all know that actions speak louder than words. So people can get up and say whatever they want, but if their life tells an entirely different story, you're believing the life more than you're believing the words. Then he goes on and he raises the bar even higher to what you might think is the ultimate level when he refers to God the Father. And God the Father bears witness of me, but the one thing you need to understand is at least at this time in history, the way God the Father would have borne witness would have been verbally. 
He would have spoken audibly, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. And they didn't all hear that voice. And so the problem, the only problem possible with God the Father bearing witness of Jesus is the fact that it was subjective. Either you were there or you weren't there, either you remembered it right or you don't remember it right. But the most sure possible testimony, the fifth level above even God the Father's audible voice is the scriptures. Search the scriptures. They are they which testify of me. And why is that even more sure? Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-19 tell you that the scriptures, the written word of God, are even more sure than the audible voice of God. They're objective. They're written down. It's ink on paper. They never change. You don't have to remember it right. You don't have to wonder if you saw it right. So the first and most authoritative place to look to accurately determine the timing of the end, of course, is going to be the Bible. And please don't let it escape you that the end, the end of this age that we understand and the ushering in of the millennial age is the theme of the entire revelation of Scripture. Certainly God has some things to say about it. It's what the whole book's about. How close are we to the end, according to the Bible? Well, you may like it, you may not like it. Maybe I'll just get you interested to come back more next week. We'll see. But in my view, there are three major markers. There's three big postmark milestone markers that you need to be aware of if you're going to try and differentiate and discern things of a prophetic nature towards the end. These are things that God has made clear. These are things we have studied before, so I'm not going to go into detail. I'm going to mention them quickly. If you need more info, you can use your comment card and ask questions. Somebody will help you. You can go back in the archives of sermons we've done before. Somebody can help you with that as well. But let me just give you the three major markers because they're actually very important. Number one, letter, or letter A, excuse me, 6,000 years from the beginning of creation. Again, going back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 8, where he says, But, beloved, be not ignorant, willingly or otherwise, be not ignorant of this one thing. There's one thing you need to know. It's that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And there's a lot of other things, and we, again, have covered this in, in past Bible studies, but let me just remind you of Isaiah chapter 46, because this is going to help you. And verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Notice what God is going to do. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure. And from this basis, from this logical foundation, we then launch out with the comparison of from the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And in six literal 24-hour days, we have the entire account in Genesis chapter 1 of God's creation. And then he rested on the seventh day. 
and you take a thousand years or as a day and a day is as a thousand years and you can work backwards through the chronology of so-and-so begat so-and-so when he was so old and you can work it all the way back to Adam to determine approximately when Adam was created on planet Earth. It wasn't millions of years ago. It was 4,000 years before Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appears after 4,000 years of human history. So it's been 2,000 since Jesus Christ. There have been roughly 6,000 years of human history on planet Earth as there were six days of creation. And that seventh day is the day of the Lord, the day the Lord can rest. The devil will be bound in a bottomless pit for 1,000 years. And so as a result of that, we can have a good idea, we can have a fair understanding that as we, that's why so many people made guesses around the year 2000. They understood 6,000 years from the very beginning of creation. They did the math, they did the genealogies, and they did the work. And so when we get around 2000, we're close. Something might happen. That's one of the markers. What's another one of the markers? Letter B. 2,000 years from the casting away of Israel. Hosea, one of the prophets, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. Notice the words again. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Now, any one of these points could be a whole extended sermon. It could be a sermon series if you wanted it to be. But again, this is ground well trod here at First Baptist Church. Let me just remind you, Israel officially rejected Jesus Christ about 2,000 years ago when they made statements like this in John 19, 14. And it was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews... Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And Matthew's account of that, in Matthew 27 and verse 25, Pilate's washing his hands of the blood. He said, I'm innocent of this blood. Matthew 27, 25. Then answered all the people, not just the chief priests. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And God was listening. He said, okay. Um, be careful some of the things you say and pray for. Somebody's listening. Somebody's listening. So Israel was cast away. Israel was put down. And just a few years later, in A.D. 70, Titus, the Roman army, comes in and they destroy Jerusalem and the Jews are scattered throughout the nations. You know the story. And they absolutely were cast away. And the prophecy of Hosea sees that day going forward and when he says, after two days, after two days, he'll revive us. Well, isn't that interesting? It was about... 1900 years when Israel began to be a nation again in 1948, the month of May. After two days, he'll revive us. And in the third day, he'll raise us up and we'll live in his sight. That's that millennial day. 
but they'll be restored. They're going to be restored. They're not officially restored yet. They're not completely done. They've been restored nationally to have an identity. And so that's our next point, letter C, one generation from the reestablishment of Israel in 1948. We're going to look at more, a little bit more of this next week, when, if you come back next week. One generation from the reestablishment of Israel as a nation, which happened in May of 1948. Many people are well familiar with the famous passage, Jesus talking in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. The fig tree represents Israel on a national level. Again, we'll see more of this next week. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. That's just the picture he wants us to understand so that we can learn the lesson. Verse 33, so likewise ye, when you shall see all these things described in Matthew 24, which deal with tribulation and things like that, know that it's near even at the doors. The that's near is referring to the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on and he says in verse 34, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass. Which generation is he talking to? Is he talking to the generation that's hearing him talk? No, specifically in the context, he's referring to the generation that will see the fig tree put forth leaves. This generation, the generation that sees Israel become a nation in 1948, shall not pass till all these things, written in Matthew 24, be fulfilled. And just to let you know how serious he is about what he just said, heaven and earth, they're going to pass away. But what I just said, that ain't ever passing away. It's sure thy testimonies are very sure. So the big question then becomes, how long is the generation that Christ referred to? How much time do we have less? How close are we? Well, how long is a generation? The testimony has to be by looking to the Lord. We have to, of course, start by looking to the Lord himself, which is synonymous with his very word. So we've covered this before in some detail, but let me just give you the two main front runners in this argument, in my opinion, the only ones to consider. The first one is Psalm chapter 90 and verse number 10. The days of our years are three score and ten. That's, that's 70. A score is 20. Three score and ten is 70. And if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet is there strength and labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. So a, a typical human life lives 70 to 80 years-ish. If you're strong, you might live longer. God bless you. Uh, but typically we find the lifespan of people from thousands of years ago, even until today, it's going to be roughly 70 to 80 years. Is that the length of the generation Jesus refers to? Maybe, maybe not. There's another possibility, and we get that from Genesis chapter 15. The context of this is Abraham and talking about the nation that will come from him that will return and take up their possession in their land, which is associated with the context that we're actually dealing with. Genesis 15, 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, right? He's talking about Egypt. There, uh, and they shall afflict them 400 years. So that's how long they're in Egypt, right? And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they shall come out with a great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, so there you have a definition, four generations are associated with 400 years. So a generation could be 100 years. In the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And this, again, is the context of Israel entering into their land and receiving their blessings. So again, how long is the generation? Is it 70 years? Well, it can't possibly be 70 years because 1948 and 70 is 2018, and that's already gone. Is it 80 years? 
If by reason of strength, well, if it's 80 years, then 1948 and 80 is 2028. But if you're going to take off time for the tribulation, arguably it's already too late for that. And so it could be 100. It could be that all of humanity will continue as we know it into the 2040s. It could be, right? Which means that people who are my age may not, after all, make it all the way to that time. It's possible that I don't live long enough to see the 2040s. I don't know. Um, we may die before the rapture. But the generation of my kids won't. Listen, here's the point. I'm not giving you a date because that'd be ridiculous. But let me tell you what you need to understand. The date setters and the parameters and the markers and the things that we draw from the Word of God, little by little by little, they're clicking off as that can't be right because that didn't happen. That can't be right because that didn't happen. And there's not much left. About all that's left is a hundred-year generation from 1948, which would take you to 2048, but you've got to take time off for the tribulation. And he says it can't go that long. It's going to be before that. So we don't know exactly when it's going to be. And the point is this. Here we sit in 2022, right? So it could still be a little while. It doesn't necessarily have to be this year, next year, or the next. It could still be a little while, but not too long. Not too long. Because it could be sooner than that. But here's what you can know for sure. It's the last statement in your notes. And, and you really need to get this one. If the Lord doesn't keep his word concerning future things, if the Lord doesn't keep his word, he's going to blow his testimony. You think he's going to blow his testimony? Is that the God you serve? Is that the one who died for your sins? Is that the one who you commit everything in your life to? A guy who can lie? A guy who can not keep his testimony? Let me tell you something. He didn't blow it when he came the first time. And he fulfilled 48 separate distinct prophecies to the letter. The odds of which occurring naturally without supernatural intervention are one chance out of one times 10 to the 157th power. A mathematical statistical equivalent of exactly zero that it could happen by chance. And when he comes again the second time, there's literally hundreds of prophecies concerning that. And his testimony's on the line. You think he's going to come through? Well, how do we make practical application of all these things we've seen today? Well, there's a few different ways. First of all, I'd say concerning questions about life after death, Jesus replied to the Sadducees in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine: "Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God." Before you think you're so quick to mouth off and say that, like you think you know or don't know or what I can or can't know, you better know the Scriptures. Don't make that mistake. The question is really this: Do you have faith to believe what God said, even if you can't see it, and even if you don't like it? But let me ask you this, because it, most people here would already understand a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you are saved, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, then the Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus Christ is in you. Hallelujah. And if you're saved, that means that His testimony is in you. And if the testimony of Jesus is in me, and that is the Spirit of the ability to tell the future, 
Well, that means that I have the ability at least to tell my future. You want me to tell you what my future is? After I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. That's what my future is. You know what the testimony of Jesus is in you, Christian? It's your eternal security. It's the fact that you can absolutely know for sure what's going to happen after this life. Because you have the testimony of Jesus in you. But if you don't, and you're not sure that you're saved, you don't have much more time to play around with God. Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You have an opportunity to surrender your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus today. He loves you so much, he gave you the time and he's long-suffering and not wanting that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Let me ask you, Christian, do you take the opportunity to share your testimony with others? Do you use it as a witness in these last days before it's too late? How is your testimony? Do you have the testimony that you please God? Do you do what you say? You see, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, but this issue, it's very practical for us as well. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you'll take this word and you'll work in our hearts and our lives. And I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for anybody who's here who's not 100% sure that if their life were to end today, that they'd have a home in heaven. Lord, if that's the case, they could just cry out to you right now. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I, I've blown it. I, I've blown my testimony a hundred times. Please forgive me of my sin. Please give me eternal life. Lord, I, I surrender it all to you. And Lord, for most of us that already know that reality, I, I pray that we would take stock as you have led us through this message today. How's our testimony? Do we keep our word? Do we use it as a testimony, as a witness to lost people? Are we letting people know about you before it's too late? And are we taking seriously the admonitions and the warnings of your word that we are literally running out of time? Where we may not know the day and the hour, yet we know the times are close. We know the times are close and you expect us to understand them. God, take this word, burden our hearts, change us, and make us more responsible as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.